Steve Cook tells us what it takes to become a fully patched member of the Hells Angels. What's the process now to become to the point of where you are considered one of the boys, fully patched, wearing the vest, you know, attending meetings? If you want to, if you make it through the process, you do what they, they want you to do. It, it comes up for a vote again. It's got to be a hundred percent vote. And if you pass, you become a full patch. And it's, uh, you know, not everybody makes it just like in law enforcement. Not everybody that goes to the police Academy makes it through to be a cop. I mean, it's just the, the reality of it. Um, so, you know, uh, especially in a group like the Angels, there's a lot of guys that don't make it. Uh, a lot of it is attitude-based, you know, just uh, how they approach it, uh, how they act. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Well, and, you know, the fact that you're talking about them going international, you know, that's not just a, a, a member of the Hells Angels decides, hey, I'm going to go open a, a chapter in Brussels or Bogota, like you said. You know, it's it has to come from somewhere, the leadership from somewhere. Yeah, it's got to be voted on. Everybody's got to vote on it and agree that that's a, a move that they want to make because a lot of times there's collateral damage that comes with it. A lot of times they say, yeah, we're going to move into this area, but we recognize that we're probably going to have to fight X, Y, or Z to do it. Is that something that we're willing to do? Because that does it, it affects us financially as an organization, but it also, you know, it's going to take lives potentially. Yeah. Well, if, if there's any need to do surveillance over in Brussels, I'm your guy, because there are some great Belgian beer <laughs> over there. I still have yet to sample. So I'm your guy for that. That place um, is beautiful. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's very beautiful, that whole area of the Netherlands. So much World War II history there, too. My dad was a World War II vet, so I love it when I'm over there. But let's let's roll back a little bit, too, and talk about the difference between the gangs. Is there a, a place that when the Hells Angels, was it was it an initial leadership? Was it the way that the military worked, you know, where everybody just kind of stood up, stepped up and took a job? What made them so different than the other gangs that came later in terms of, because they've got this, you're right, they've thought of everything, trademarking things. They've got attorneys, they've got accountants. They are crime ink in a sense. You know, they have incorporated and they've learned how to do this. Is Can you trace back to say what was that kind of defining moment or do you know what it was to where they, they ran it, they thought of it, we're going to be a biker club, but we're going to be a business first? Uh, as compared to these other ones, which were, they were a business, but they were a biker club first. And that's why they keep getting, you know, uh, all their uh, held president days and their heads arrested. Well, as much as it pains me to say it, uh, you, you have to give a certain amount of credit to Sonny Barger uh, because he was, you know, fairly visionary uh, in, the, in the early, you know, times of the organization. And I think uh, had a lot to do with the marketing side of it, and you know, especially you know the Hollywood stuff, getting them you know into the movies, and and Sonny was in California, but then moved to Arizona, right? Yeah, he was in Oakland originally, and then he ended up in Cave Creek, and uh, I, I've heard that he might be. Well, which Sherry Oz actually had uh, in our episode, Sherry Oz, uh, the episode we did with her, she actually had a run-in with Sonny. Well, it is, and I, I think the thing is, is I, I think, I think Sonny. You know, when the Angels 
started, you know, Sonny was not a member. A lot of people have this misconception that, oh, Sonny Barger started the Hells Angels. He didn't start the Hells Angels. Uh, they, were, they were already established, you know, uh, at the time that he came in. But I think what Sonny did was brought a lot of organization to it. You know, I think there was a lot of uh, loose-knit, you know, stuff wasn't really organized uh to the to the level that it needed to be and i think he kind of came in and and said hey you know we need to do things a certain way you know we need to uh recruit this way we need to prospect guys this way uh you know these are some of the rules you know that we need to have uh for this organization in in order for it to to prosper and uh so like i said I, i think he has to get a lot of credit for that uh, with that being said, I also think he's probably done, you know, as much harm to the group uh, as as he did good because, you know, uh, the thing you have to know about Sonny Barger is Sonny is the kind of guy that there are the rules for Sonny and then the rules for everybody else. And, you know, Sonny kind of gets to do what Sonny wants to do. But if a rank and file member tried to do some of the stuff that he did, uh, they get their ass beat and their, their patch pulled and get put out in bad standing. So do as I do, not as, or do as I say, not as I do. Exactly. And and I can tell you from a a law enforcement side and, and I mean, somebody who, you know, I've met Sonny, I mean, hell, Sonny and I got a picture taken together one year at Sturgis. It was a, a big uh, entertaining thing for our, the club members, I think, uh, because, you know, I've never made any bones about it. Uh, I respect these guys. Make no mistake about it. I sure shit ain't afraid of them. Uh, I walk right in the middle of them. I'm not one of these guys. Uh, I, I mentioned my friend Chris Omont earlier. Uh, he coined a term photocop. Uh, and what that is is a cop that, that is some, you know, collects intel and sits around and takes pictures of these guys from down the street, uh, but never engages with them. Uh, I don't play that. Uh, if I want something, I'll come up and ask you for it. Uh, if I want your picture, I'll come up and take it. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't need to, you know, hide or, or, you know, try to be sneaky or covert about it. That's just not, I've never operated like that. Uh, that's not my thing. So I'll walk up right in the middle of you. You don't have to like it. Uh, and, you don't have to hang out and talk to me either, but that, that's kind of how I do it. But for my purposes, you know, I always looked at Sonny as uh, kind of a novelty, if you will, uh, entertainment. I, I don't never really took him seriously as a member. And I, and I say that with the utmost respect for, uh, I know what kind of man Sonny is, and I definitely know what Sonny was capable of doing. But because Sonny is such an important historical figure, and, uh, you know, from a media standpoint, he's kind of been the face uh, of the club as far as, you know, what the public gets to see. I knew that they were never going to get, you know, since the time he got out of prison, I knew they weren't going to put him back in a position that he's going to get locked up because that's not good for the club and it's not good for the image. So he was never somebody that I looked at as, Oh, well, this is a guy making day-to-day decisions uh, about what's going on. The guy that did that uh, was George Christie. Uh, My opinion. And again, you know, and I know George pretty damn well. Uh, And uh, I, you know, again, 
I've got a lot of respect for George. Uh, I know that makes uh, a lot of cops cringe when you say that because a lot of cops have this attitude that, oh, I'm the police and, and you know, you're a bad guy or you were a bad guy. Uh, so I always have to hold that view. I look at this as a, as a cat and mouse in a lot of regards. And you know what? Some people are good at what they do, and I've got no problem acknowledging it if you are good at what you do. Uh, I, I'm sure Murph can tell you the same thing about, uh, you know, Pablo and, and probably about 100 other people they dealt with. Some of these guys are worthy adversaries. They're, they're, they're bad guys, but they're good bad guys. They're good at it, and uh, I don't have a problem acknowledging it. And at you at your own peril, you do not respect the knowledge they have, the skills they have, the organization they have, because that's that's what gets you in trouble. You don't have to like them. It's not like you're going to take them home and, you know, have dinner with them and they're going to become your best buddy and stuff. But it's that lack of respect for, like you say, your adversary. That's what gets a lot of cops in trouble because they go, well, I don't have to do that. And then, you know, what comes to bite you in the butt? The time that they could have flipped, the time that they could have provided you information, they don't do it because you were the biggest jerk they ever knew as opposed to, I can't tell you how many folks we've talked to on the podcast to where they've had people come back and talk to them later. Steve or Murph, I know you guys had people like that all the time, you know, down in Columbia or even later, you know, people that if you treat them decent and treat them with respect, you'd be surprised what how they pay you back years later. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, and that's what a lot of the motorcycle gangs revolve around is that respect, right? And Steve, before we go any further, you mentioned a word, and I want to let's let's do just a quick tangent, but I want to set the stage because this is going to set the stage for an interview that we're going to have later uh, with Jay Dobbins. We talked about that. We've got him coming on. But it, you mentioned the word prospect, and this is going to be one of the reasons why it's so hard to infiltrate motorcycle gangs because at that time of their structure. Walk us through what does it take for somebody to become a patched member of a gang and, and what that means. And, let, you know, everybody knows who the Hells Angels are. Let, let's kind of walk through what's it like, what does it take for a dude to walk through and get to the point of where he becomes a fully patched member? Well, you got to be an associate before you're anything else. So, uh, you know, you, you have to come from somewhere. Now, back when I started doing this, that was a very hard thing to do. If they hadn't known you for 10 or 15 years, they weren't even going to talk to you because they didn't trust you. Nowadays, gangs are expanding so rapidly and they're recruiting so heavily that they don't have options. They, they just, they're, it's a, a numbers game. So they're trying to get as many people as they can get. But, you know, as an associate, one of two things is going to happen. Uh, you know, either you're going to already know somebody uh, from maybe you work at a Harley dealership with them or a, a bar or a strip club or something like that, tattoo shop, or you're going to get to know these people by showing up at functions and events, maybe going to bike shows and, and poker runs and swap meets and things like that. Pretty much anybody can be an associate. You go buy a support t-shirt, uh, you hang out, you support the club, you know, the best way that you can, which is usually financially buying crap from them. Uh, and at some point, one of two things will happen. Either they will see you as somebody that they think might be a, a, a good potential member, and they can approach you and ask if you want to come around the club. Or you could approach them and say, hey, uh, I'd like to, you know, exp express my intentions. I I'd like to come around the club. Now, if they're not interested in you, they'll just tell you well, that's not going to happen. 
But if they are, then they'll go, okay, well, I'll take it back to the brothers and I'll talk about it. So they'll go back to a church meeting, which is their, their weekly club meeting that they have at the clubhouse. And they'll say, hey, so here's the deal. This guy Murph, I know, uh, you know, I've worked at the Harley dealership with him for a couple of years now. He's a solid dude, reliable. Uh, you know, some of you've probably met him uh, or seen him around at some of the events. Uh, he's asked to come around the club. Does anybody have an issue with that? As long as nobody has an issue with it, then he'll be asked to be a hangaround. He'll be asked to, to officially come hang around the club. Now, if somebody does have an issue, they might try to talk it out, figure out what that issue is. If they can't resolve it, they can't resolve it. And that, that is what it is. But if he gets asked to come around the club, then he's going to be a hangaround. Usually as a hangaround, that's going to last for about six months. And you're going to do just a, it's kind of like giving the club an opportunity to get to know you and giving you an opportunity to get to know the club. But you're going to do a lot of grunt work, I guess, uh, you know, working, tending bar, getting drinks for members, uh, maybe standing outside the clubhouse during church meeting and, and guarding motorcycles, you know, doing counter surveillance, looking for the cops, uh, you know, running errands, whatever kind of stuff that they, they need you to do. If you navigate that, you do a good job, you're reliable, they don't have any, uh, you know, issues with you, well, then they're going to ask you to prospect. And, and again, that's a 100% vote thing. Everybody in the charter has got to vote and say, yeah, we think this guy has fulfilled his, you know, obligations as a hangaround, and we want him to prospect. Does it have to be a unanimous vote? It does. Uh, if you got somebody that's, that's hanging it up, that can cause some issues. That's not to say that a president couldn't veto it, override it, but by and large, that's, you know, the direction that it's got to go. As a prospect, you're going to do a lot of those same things that a, a hangaround does, but they're also going to do a lot of things to vet you. Uh, you know, you're going to fill out an application. Uh, they're going to background check you. They might give you a polygraph uh, just to make sure that you're not a cop, you're not an informant, you're not something that's going to cause them problems. It's going to, you know, uh, draw any heat to them or anything like that. So are they applying for the Hells Angels or a position with the federal law enforcement? Because this sounds like a, this sounds like getting a security clearance or, you know, or getting a job somewhere. Well, we got to have you come in and do a poly. Uh, we have to do a background check on you. We send out background investigators. How many um, push-ups and setups can you do? <laughs> yeah, the physical test. <laughs> hey, Steve, before we go too far down that line, though, you keep talking about hanging around the club. These and I just want to be clear too. These are these are actual real physical locations. Clubs are they things that are that because they still have to operate within the law to a certain extent, right? Are these things licensed as clubs? You know, as private clubs? You know, where they they're legally allowed to serve alcohol, or are these things more like speakeasies or you know off the off the books? Most of them are pretty much off the books. Uh, all of them will try to find ways around. Like I know that uh, like the outlaws. I think they call them, you know. Uh, gosh, what do they call them? Outlaw bucks or something like, I can't remember the terminology that they use, but they basically will have play money that you can buy that you can use to buy your drinks with. Well, it's still the same thing. You're still buying alcohol, but just tr trying to work around, you know, laws and, and things like that. But most of the time, because it's uh, the clubhouse and they're having a party, they're not really selling drinks. They're providing drinks. 
uh, to people. So they kind of look at it more as if you were just having a party at your house or something. Just come over to a friend's house and I give you a beer. It's more like that. So, so you start off as an associate, then you can hang around and then you become a prospect at what point. Um, and let's take it from there, but what point uh, does somebody, is somebody start allowed, is allowed to start wearing a vest or start wearing anything that's affiliated with the club? As a hang around, you're going to wear a vest, at least with the angels. They were a, a rectangular uh, bottom rocker. Uh, it's red with white lettering, and it'll say, you know, Omaha, Denver, uh, you know, wherever, whatever chapter they're hanging around for. And then once they become a prospect, they'll get just the state bottom rocker. So if they're, you know, uh, hanging around in Missouri, for example, they'll have a Missouri bottom rocker uh, just to show you that they're a part of the the, the Mo crew, you know. So uh, it, it depends, uh, you know, where you're geographically located. But, yeah, they're all going to have uh, something to identify them. So now you start becoming a prospect. So you, you associate, then hang around, and then prospect. What's the process? What's after prospect? And what do they do during that time? Here's the other thing I'm interested in, too. At what point do they start testing you in terms of they have you go out and commit a crime or do something to where, like, you got to put some real skin in the game? Well, and I think that's, again, that's kind of one of the misconceptions that's out there. I've never seen uh, – you're definitely not going to see it on paper, but I've never seen uh, any specific scenario where you're required to go commit a felony or anything like that uh, before they'll allow you to join. What A lot of it's just – more situational, uh, how you react to a, a situational, uh, occurrence, you know, uh, we're at a bar and a fight breaks out or they call everybody to the clubhouse and they say, Hey, uh, the Vagos have been coming into our turf. They're hanging out at, uh, the strip club down here and we're going to go down there and, and beat their ass. Uh, now, you know, you're obviously, in for a penny, in for a pound. You know, you're expected to go down there and participate. If you don't, that's going to pretty much tell them right there that, you, you know, you're not worthy. You're not one of them. So uh, a lot of it's just, you know, situations that they put you in uh, to see how you're going to respond. See, and see if you're going to respond, yeah. And what are some of the things that get you kicked out at the various stages, like from associate to hang around to prospect? Are, are there certain things that are taboo that, uh, you know, violate that, that's like the, um, there's no coming back from a violation like that. Well, there, there's a variety of things. I mean, one, one thing to just to touch on before I, I forget is there's something called uh, a mud check and what a mud check is, is they're checking your mud to see, see what you're about. So that could be a lot of different things. Uh, it could be a fist fight. It could be, uh, you know, putting you in a, a situation to see kind of like we do with cops with, uh, you know, your, your academy type training, puts you in some kind of scenario to see how you're going to respond, how you're going to react to it. And they're, they're again, checking your mud uh, to see how you hold up. It could be something as simple as, you know, they pull you in a room and turn the lights on you and start interrogating you about your background. You know, where were you born? Who are your parents? Do you have any siblings? What kind of work did you used to do? Uh, and to see how you react to that. See if you shut down. See if you freak out. See if you pause, hesitate. Uh, because obviously they're wanting to catch you in a lie. Uh, see if you're <clears throat> law enforcement. Or, you know, see if there's something else going on that uh, they're going to need to know about. So uh, as far as other things that can get you booted, uh, 
well, for one thing, just failure to perform. Uh, being a prospect, it's kind of a 24-hour-a-day job, seven days a week. If they call you and, and need something, you're expected to respond and do what they ask you to do. If you're not available, you're not answering your phone, uh, you're late, you're not showing up, uh, you're not participating, uh, those are all things that can get you, you know, kicked out. Uh, somebody that's in the bag too much, meaning using too much dope. Uh, I've seen that happen with prospects where they're, they're just getting high too much. And, you know, the one thing with the club, that's why they, they've got rules against using needles, is you can't be more addicted to uh, the drug than you are to the club. You know, the, the club comes first. So if your main thing is getting a needle in your arm so you can get high, you're obviously not, you're, you're not singularly focused where you need to be to the organization. That's interesting about the needles because, you know, obviously some of these guys are going to be involved in doing some level of, of drugs, you know, they'll take it themselves, but it's, it's keeping it, it's almost like Keith Richards, you know, with the Rolling Stones, the ability to be able to manage it and not let it overwhelm your day to day stuff. But that's interesting about the needles. I'm just finishing up a documentary on Netflix about heroin up actually up in Massachusetts. And I'm looking at the, these people with needles, just the pure addiction of it. So I can see why they have this. It's almost a weird kind of code of honor or a code of conduct that these guys have. I mean, but when you think about it, logically it works for them because you're right. You start sticking a needle in your arm. That means that you probably not only be addicted to that stuff more, but you're more likely to get caught by law enforcement, more likely to flip, more likely to, you know, to, to, to harm quote to the club. So, I mean, that's just interesting to see. Um, continuing on with the prospect stuff, um, how long are you a prospect and what's the next step after, uh, well, I mean, continue on with talking about being a member. So you're walking that through, right? So you're walking through being a prospect. What's the next step in that? And how do they evaluate you? Is there a formal meeting? Do they vote on you? You know, what, what kind of comes next? Well, uh, a typical prospect phase, I mean, th this could be different group to group, but typically it's about a year uh, to go through that that process, especially with a group like the Angels. I mean, the, the, the Hell's Angels have a saying, uh, we don't mass produce Hell's Angels. You know, we make them one member at a time. Uh, and and they're, they're definitely into uh, quality over quantity. Uh, other groups like the Mongols, not so much. Uh, I've met Mongols that I'm pretty sure probably couldn't tie their own shoes. But, you know, they, it's a numbers game. They want to get guys in there and, and, you know, do as much as they can do. Are there dues involved or any kind of money that has to I mean, in terms of when you're a, between associate and hang around and prospect? Yeah, members pay dues, uh, whether it's uh, you know weekly or monthly, depending on the organization. But yeah, you definitely pay uh, have to pay dues, and, and that's that's a requirement. There, there's a lot of it, it, the thing that I find so comical about motorcycle gangs is for a bunch of individuals who claim to be nonconformist, and you know we live life on our terms, and and you know we don't want to be like citizens, you know, normal society, they've got more rules than anybody does. I mean, that... <laughs> I'm going to say, yeah, hell my, the Boy Scouts have fewer rules than the Hell's Angels do. How much would a patch member, what would dues be a month? Is that a hundred bucks? Is that a thousand bucks? What? You know, again, it, it depends on the group on, on what they pay, what size they are, uh, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, capital, uh, they're trying to build up kind of war chest. 
so yeah, it, it really depends uh, on the, the size of the organization. But I can tell you, um, some of the larger groups that can become quite a sizable amount, and that brings in a whole another area uh, that you see with a lot of these organizations is the uh, the guys at the top, not unlike politicians, uh, they get fat, they they're living off the club and not really doing anything as far as to to earn that money and it kind of turns into a a scam uh, candidly Uh, these guys just kind of sponge off everybody else uh, as you know this person in power so to speak and a lot of the guys that have you know I spend a lot of time dealing with former members of a lot of different bike gangs and it's entertaining talking to a lot of them because you'll you'll have these conversations and and when you really start breaking it down for them and the realization hits about how stupid all this is when you really get down to it i'm like you know you guys understand that you're wearing a vest with a bunch of patches on it uh and you guys are fighting with other guys wearing vests with patches on it over uh a city or a street or, you know, a neighborhood, whatever it is, I I go, this is like stupid schoolyard bullshit that you guys are engaging in and people are dying over it, you know, going to prison over it. And a lot of times, you know, you'll see the wheels turn and these guys will be like, I can't believe what an idiot I was. And I had one guy tell me, he's like, Man, now that I'm not high, that I don't use anymore, he goes, I look back and I think, what a douche I was. I mean, he goes, really? He goes, I used to ride around and and puff my chest out when I went places, walk in like a rooster, like I was some badass. And he goes, it's amazing someone didn't just knock the shit out of me. Uh, You know, but he goes, because I always had six or seven guys with me. And he goes, I'm not tough. He goes, that's the craziest thing about it. He goes, I'm not tough at all. He goes, I don't even like to fight. And uh, But he goes, you know, I would prance around. Oh, I'm a bike gang. You know, I'm a bandito. And and he goes, it's just stupid. And he goes, I look back at it now, and I'm like, thank God I got uninvolved in this. Because I, otherwise, I'd still be wasting life, wasting time. Jeez. Oh, if the public only knew... Um... So going from prospect, walk us through now. What is it? What's the process now to become to the point of where you are considered one of the boys, fully patched, wearing the vest, you know, attending meetings? If you want to, if you make it through the process, you do what they they want you to do. It it comes up for a vote again. It's got to be a hundred percent vote, and if you pass, you become a full patch. And it's uh, you know, not everybody makes it. Just like in law enforcement, not everybody that goes to the police academy makes it through to be a cop. I mean, it's just the, the reality of it. Um, so, you know, uh, especially in a group like the Angels, there's a lot of guys that don't make it. Uh, a lot of it is attitude-based, you know, just uh, how they approach it, uh, how they act. Some of these guys, and I, I've experienced this personally on more than one occasion, of, you know, dealing with prospects on a traffic stop and they want to act a fool with you. And I just kind of, I kind of chuckle it off and, and immediately we'll go to the full patch member who's in charge 
and say, hey, uh, your prospect over there, and I'll point at him, would you like to deal with him or would you like me to? And they'll always just like, no, hey, Cook, I got it. I'll handle it. And I've had him go and, and chew these guys' ass in front of me. you know. And you can already tell. You're like, well, <laughs> that guy's <laughs> sealed his fate. He's, he's done. Uh, for one thing, they're probably going to beat his ass when they get where they're going because he delayed the traffic stop an additional 15 minutes just by being a, a clown. And this probably isn't the first time you know, that he's acted out. And uh, so you, you can kind of tell, you know, which direction this is going to go. Well, and the last thing you want is unne- unwarranted and unnecessary attention, you know, on the gang, especially when you, if you're going to get a ticket, take the ticket, move along, right? Um, hey, so Steve, let's kind of bring this part to an end. But the final question is, from the time they start being a, an associate till the time they are voted in as a fully patched member, what's an average, I, hate, I don't know if you know, you know, if there's an average, but is there an average time? Because like you talked about, even to become an associate, you're, you got to vet these guys. Like I've known this guy for two or three years. What kind of time frame are we talking about here? Well, I mean, if you just want to look at the hang around prospect phase, you know, you're probably looking at a year and a half uh, just for that, that stage. And make no mistake, this is intentional. The, they, they do this for more reasons than, than just, you know, seeing what kind of member this guy's going to be. They know that from a law enforcement standpoint, the maximum you're going to leave somebody undercover is a year and a half. It's just not good for you to leave people in. You know, anybody can tell you that psychologically to leave somebody in something three, four, five years. They know that. They're not dumb. So the longer they can drag this out, the better off they are, and it mitigates the damage done. If they drag a guy out a year and a half, by that time the agency's pretty much about ready to shut this thing down. You mentioned uh, Jay Bird earlier, Jay Dobbins. That's exactly what happened. He was about at that stage, a year and a half, something like that, and the agency was ready to be done with it because they thought, oh, we, we've done this too long. Uh, but, you know, while I'm on the topic, I think it, it, it warrants saying, and this isn't coming from Jay, this isn't coming from some other cop, this is coming from an expert, which I consider myself to be, I don't, I don't use the term lightly, Jay Dobbins became a Hell's Angel. The Hell's Angels can say he didn't all they want. Sonny can say, oh, it never happened. I'm here to tell you, Jay Dobbins patched into the Hell's Angels. He may not have had a formal ceremony. He may not have got to go to the, the world run up in Laconia and have the, you know, the formal swearing in, if you will, uh, as a full patch member, but he patched in the club. I got that from guys I know that were in the club that acknowledged, they're like, hey, hang on, I can't lie about it. Yeah, he, he got over. <laughs> he, he, got, he beat us. He got over on us. Uh, they want to play like it never happened. Oh, he just, he was a prospect. Bullshit. He got patched in and, you know, they're never going to acknowledge it, but truth is the truth. You bring up a good point, though, on on the time it takes, because it, it takes a toll. Not only that, but it's like, you know, with many of these agencies, whether it's federal, state, or local, they, they start looking at results. And after a year and a half, if you're saying, well, I'm a, I'm a prospect, I may become a member, somebody's going somewhere saying, yeah, what have you brought me? Have we made cases? What are we doing here? Because people are going to look at it not understanding 
the strategy, if you want to penetrate the Hells Angels, you got to play their game. You can't make them play your game, which says, hey, we got to be inside your club in a year for us to make a case against you. They're not going to do that. So, I mean, that's been one of the hardest things to reconcile. When you're, if you're an intelligence agency, you've got years maybe to work on some of this stuff because they measure things differently. But that had to be a struggle. That had to be uh, an area of concern too. It's like you're getting so close and somebody wants to pull the pin because they don't understand how the process works. And if I remember correctly from from Jay's book, ATF didn't want to do the investigation, and and Laughlin is what prompted them to say, okay, now we've got a problem. We do need to investigate this. No, yeah, you're you're correct, and that's you know again, that's the the law enforcement problem as a whole is they don't give these guys due attention. Uh, a lot of cops don't care about it, or they don't know anything about it, and then you have another side of cops that love to talk about it and, oh, I'm going to go teach a class about it. But if you really looked at their resume, they've never worked a case. They've never even stopped one of these guys. But by by goodness sake. My God, I've been to plenty of training. I'm now qualified to teach somebody. Exactly. And that that's probably one of the biggest problems that we have in this is there is so much bad information that gets put out. Uh, you know, I'll just give you an example. Uh, this is a very unpopular thing in the law enforcement world to say, but I, I'm going to speak the truth because the truth is the truth. Not every guy that's a member of an outlaw motorcycle gang is a criminal. Not every one of them uses drugs. Okay. Now I, I've personally known several guys, older guys that were diabetic, they didn't drink, they didn't get high, they didn't do anything, okay? Um, I've known a few guys in the club that had legit businesses that weekend partied, snorted a little little crank, smoked some weed. Is that against the law? Absolutely it is. But when I say criminal, I mean distribution, uh you know, major felony type of stuff, extortion, stuff like that. But these guys didn't do anything. They were in love, just like you've all seen it. In love with the lifestyle. They just wanted to be, exactly be a part of that brotherhood, right? And just like you've seen in law enforcement, there's a lot of people that are in love with the idea of being a cop, but they sure as hell ain't really a cop. You know, they might, they might have a badge and a uniform, but they're not the police. Uh, They don't, they don't go out and do police shit. So, uh, but I always say, Everybody in one of these groups has the potential of being a criminal because if they go out someplace and they engage a rival bike gang, they're going to get involved in an assault and in a, you know, territory dispute, whatever you want to call it. That's why they're a gang. It's not just because every single member does something. It's because as the collective whole, if it comes down to it, your brother's got your brother's back and you're not going to turn on your brother. And if it comes down to it, that we have to fight for our piece of the pie, whether I'm one of the guys that's actively selling dope or stealing bikes or doing whatever it's in for a penny and for a pound. And that's why they're organized crime. That's why they're a criminal organization. And make no mistake about it. They are organized crime, just like the mafia. Absolutely. So, Steve, let's continue on from that, because what I want to do now is now we've got a really good idea of what it takes to become a prospect, the challenges with infiltrating these gangs. 
what let's start talking about now the evolution of these because we started great history about where they started about how they've changed let's start talking about now the changes that are happening you know so um as these things as these gangs start evolving what do you see um like if if you point to like certain periods of time like in a decade or like in the 1990s and the 2000s how are these things evolving? Because eventually we're getting to the point of where they're going to be international. They're involved with cartels. They're involved in stuff they've never been involved with before. Kind of walk us through now this evolution. Well, what you saw with a lot of the motorcycle gangs is a lot of dealings with the you know traditional organized crime with with the mafia, and you know whether that was doing you know debt collection, uh, you know extortion, you know murder for hire, you know, you name it. They would contract out with, with the bikers because they knew that these were guys that were, you know, uh, able to, you know, do the task, you know. And they've got their own code of silence, you know, their own uh, deal there. So they weren't people they were worried about that were going to roll over on them. Uh, ultimately, what has happened with outlaw motorcycle gangs and probably what's the most concerning is they've had to learn to adapt and change with the times. And one thing that a long time ago would have been kind of, I think, considered taboo, it still is with the Hells Angels. That The Hells Angels have a rule. If you've ever been a cop, you can't be a Hells Angel. It's just not going to happen. Uh, oh, damn. Yeah, and that they, was my next year's resolution. Oh, I'm going to have to go sell my Harley then. I did this whole thing. You just ruined the podcast, Steve. Sorry. <laughs> but a lot of other groups don't hold those same uh, views. Uh, the pagans, the outlaws, uh, you know, the Vagos. The Vagos had two California state probation officers gun-toting, badge-carrying probation officers that were full-patch members of the Vagos. The Pagans, the Pagans had an ex-Philadelphia Police Department sergeant uh, that was a chapter president up in Philly. Uh, the Outlaws have former cops that are members. The Kinfolk have former cops that are members. Uh, that That's troubling, to say the least, because... Obviously, these are not people that we would want in the profession, but no different than the people that they get in through the military. They get certain skills and, uh, you know, training and knowledge and abilities uh, from their positions, and that makes these groups more difficult to investigate, uh, more difficult to deal with. And, uh, you know, so that's something that uh, is really an interesting you know, I guess trend as, as time moves along. Something else is the fact that, you know, there have always been African-American bike clubs. Uh, there's always even been interaction between the two. I mean, you know, the Hells Angels way back in the, you know, probably the 60s, uh, the, the East Bay Dragons, you know, Sonny Barger, he, he had a good relationship with them. You know, they were a respected club. Uh, but historically, you know, the African-American clubs have had their own thing. The, you know, traditional, you know, white clubs have had their own thing. But we're now seeing it a lot more common that these groups will party with, uh, you know, African-American clubs. 
They will have support clubs that they'll bring African-American members into. And some of these groups, like, you know, the kinfolk, for example, uh, they were they were bringing African-American members into their club. Uh, so that's something that, that was kind of unique. And overseas, it is very common to see in groups like the Banditos, the Outlaws, uh, the Mongols, to see um, members that are, uh, <clears throat> you know, Middle Eastern, uh, very, you know, dark complected that, you know, historically maybe over here might be viewed as, uh, you know, that's on the line. Uh, you know, this isn't somebody that, you know, we can let in, in the club. And now it's become commonplace. Uh, the Hells Angels, for example, have been on a major push in the Middle East. Uh, they've got a chapter in Egypt. Uh, at least one, they may have two at this point. Uh, I know they have a, uh, actually, I, I believe they do. They have a, a Red Sea chapter, and I think they have a Nomads chapter over there. Uh, they've got... Do they ride camels instead of motorcycles? What do they do over there? <laughs> it, it's it's funny that you ask, because I've got a, a friend who is a, a savant on uh, motorcycle gangs uh, because he was he was in them, uh, uh, a cat named Ed Winterhalder. They call him uh, Connecticut Ed. Uh, he used to be a, a national officer for the banditos. And he was telling me, uh, that the culture in the middle East right now is basically what it was here in the U S back in the seventies. Like that, that's where people are at with the, this whole biker lifestyle and, you know, building custom bikes and choppers and, and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, so I, I find that interesting and, and, you know, he, he's a guy that would know, uh, like I say, I got to know him over, over the years, both, I, I, you know, in the club and out of the club and, and, you know, uh, he's, you know, a guy that does a lot of media, a lot of, you know, TV and things like that, but he makes it his business to know what goes on in the world as far as, you know, trends. Uh, he, he's more, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, probably a true motorcycle enthusiast as far as not just the club life, but just the, the biker lifestyle, I guess. Uh, uh, a person who's a, a student of the lifestyle uh, of bikers. So when someone like that tells you that, hey, you know, they're a, a 1970s era in the Middle East, that's very intriguing because that kind of shows you the path that they're going to take and ultimately where they're going to head up. And you've already got groups, you know, the, the Banditos are, are established in Dubai. Uh, the Hells Angels have, you know, a support club in Dubai. Uh, there is a lot, a lot of money over there, obviously. And uh, so that's that's the big push right now. If you'd have told me 20 years ago that you'd have full-patch Hell's Angels in Turkey, I'd have laughed at you. But they've got a lot of them. They've got... You know, when we, when we did our pre-call with you, I was shocked to hear all this. I had no idea that they were, were going international. I mean, you'd heard... Here and there, there were biker clubs, especially in Australia. I'd heard about those before. But to go to the Middle East, where they are, are so strict on their laws, especially when it comes to crime and drug offenses, I, I'm just really shocked. You said Saudi Arabia, they were there, and, and we hear about you know the severe punishment the criminals receive there. 
I've been over to the UAE many, many, many times. That country is about five, five and a half million. Uh, 75% of the people, maybe even more, uh, are expats. They're not Emiratis. I mean, and so you've got this huge influx of people that come in. There's been a huge boom in uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai. You know, there's been a lot of building and stuff going on. So you've got all these influx of people and workers and stuff. I could see how they could kind of fly under the radar in some of those places. You know, Turkey, um, places like that, been there uh, as well. It's it's interesting because it is culturally different. So I wonder, you know, how culturally they've had to adapt. What what is the, what is the message? What's the selling point to join the gang when you're in the Middle East versus out of California? We get it. We get that lifestyle. But I'm wondering what their messaging is, how they're marketing it. Well, you know, I think it's like anything else. I think it's the American dream. You know, these guys, you know, they see what goes on in the West. And I, I think if you're a bad guy, you know, you're a criminal, uh, you want to be the best criminal that you can be. So if you're going to be a criminal, be an elite criminal. And what's more elite than being a hell's angel? And, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't say that, you know, lightly. Um, you, you can say what you want about the mob and, you know, uh, the traditional Italian mafia ha- had their time and sure, they, they're still around and, and they're still, you know, doing things. But on the level of, uh, you know, span of influence, uh, nobody touches the Hells Angels. Uh, they're worldwide. They're, they're all over the U.S., Canada, Central America, South America, uh, in Africa, uh, all over the Middle East, Southeast Asia. I, I mean, you know, Russia. They've got a huge presence in Russia. Uh, they've actually got uh, contacts all the way directly up with Putin. Uh, there's a, a bike gang in Russia called the Night Wolves. And when the Hells Angels came into Russia, they kind of cherry-picked that gang, took the best of the best out of it. The guy who's a, the head of the Night Wolves, him and Putin are very close friends. Uh, they ride motorcycles together. Uh, Putin has attended events before, uh, this guy's been, uh, at their, uh, you know, whatever you want to call the, the palace, <laughs> if you will. Uh, he's also, uh, very tight with the, the premier over in Serbia. So, you know, these guys, they're entrenched and they have powerful friends, uh, and allies and they, uh, you know, they use that to exploit, and to continue to, you know, conduct the business that they do. Well, we've we've got some friends in, in various places that are much more in the know than we are, and Morgan so more more so than I. But you know, everybody that knows says Putin's no more than the the biggest organized criminal in Russia. Yeah. Oh man, he's nothing happens in Russia without the implicit approval of Vladimir Putin, Tavarish. So Nuporuska, yet. Uh, so, but. Hey, I want to ask you one me. question before. Uh, what would you say? It means bite me, right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Ochebriadna, <laughs> uh, Um, One thing I want to ask you before we get too far down, you were talking about Connecticut Ed. He got out of the gang. I'm interested. It's like in some things like La Cosa Nostra, you're just talking about organized crime. There's really no leaving the family. There's no leaving stuff. You know, you got to buy your way out or you got to do certain things, it, but there's really no leaving. How do you leave a gang? How do you leave a motorcycle gang? Well, the the fortunate thing right now is that they've gotten so big that 
it's hard to keep track of everything and everybody. And are there guys that leave that, you know, get tuned up or, or have some, you know, issues? Absolutely. A, a lot of it's in how you leave if you do it the right way. And doing it the right way would be approaching the membership and telling them that you need to, to take a leave of absence, whether it be for um, personal issues, financial issues, health issues, whatever it is, and you know, boxing up your club property, bringing it to the clubhouse, turning it in, and uh, you know, going on your way. Now, that's not to say that it always goes that way, and there have been guys that have tried to do it the right way and have still got their ass beat for it. Uh, those are a lot of the guys that call me. Uh, after the fact and say, Hey, uh, I got information you might want. I was a member of, you know, insert gang name. And, uh, this is how they did me. Uh, I, I think the big thing is a lot of these guys realize is the illusion of brotherhood is just that it's an illusion. It really doesn't exist. Uh, it, it did at one time, probably from the 40s through the, the 70s, uh, you know, the late 40s through the 70s. There was probably uh, real brotherhood in these groups. It's not that way anymore. Uh, the, these guys are out for what they can get out of it, and that's it. How much money can I get? How many women can I get? Uh, how much power can I get? It's, you know, it's the me, 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 you know, what I can get from you know, my membership. And sadly enough, uh, a lot of these guys don't see it until it's too late. Well, you mentioned, so getting out, you, they have to surrender all their club, their their patches, everything, right? Anything that has Hell's Angels, they can no longer maintain that. But tell us about the tattoos they have on them. How do they deal with that? Well, they're supposed to, one of two things, depending on how they leave, if they get kicked out, they're supposed to cover them. Uh, if they go out in good standing, they have to get out dates on them. Uh, just basically show them what date they left. And, uh, you know, so, uh, again, most of them do that. Most of them are supposed to do that. Uh, I know several members, uh, of different organizations that never did that, uh, that still have their tattoos. And obviously they're not going around places where they're going to probably run into anybody. Uh, but, and I know some guys that, you know, I had a guy that was a Mongol, uh, that worked with me for a long time and he eventually got his stuff covered up. I mean, he, he just didn't like having it cause he had it, you know, 1% diamond on his hand and, you know, the Mongol, you know, center patch on his forearm and all this different, you know, nonsense. And he just didn't want it. He wanted it gone. So he covered it up. Is there any truth to the stories that uh, they might bring in a, a sharp knife, razor blade, or a cheese grater and just take those things off your skin? Depending on how mad they are. I mean, they'll, they'll, they're going to get it one way or another. I mean, if either you do it voluntarily or they'll, they'll do it for you. Damn. That's why, that's why I got no tattoos anywhere. You can't, you can't take off what the, you don't have. So, Steve, there's a lot of, you know, obviously major gangs and minor gangs. But out of the major gangs, let's set... Hell's Angels aside, they're kind of a separate category. Which of the major gangs worry you the most about them being the most violent? Um, you know, if we're talking gangs, I would be thinking like, wh who's the version of MS-13 that are just plain, violent, you know, killing machines? Who are the ones you worry about kind of in that spectrum? 
Well, you kind of have to split it up between three groups. Um, you know, I think the the outlaws, the Mongols, and the pagans are probably three of the more or the most violent groups uh, as far as you know unpredictability and and you know things like that. Um, I definitely think that the outlaws is the most difficult group to join. Uh, I think their uh, process uh, is, is the hardest. Uh, there, there's no easy way in with that group, but <clears throat> they are, are definitely a group that, you know, they're, they're not afraid to engage you on your turf. They're not one of these ones that, you know, needs to wait for you to come to them. They'll, they'll engage you on their, on your turf. They don't have any qualms about that. Yeah. I just want to get back to the, uh, the guys in the middle East. It, <laughs> I'm still surprised by all that, to be honest with you. So if they're going to establish a chapter there, would somebody from the U S go over there and start making contacts and, and then how do they, you know, those chapters or associates, whatever they might be support clubs, would they go through the same vetting process that they would here in the United States? Well, yeah, the, the process is all the same, but what they do, like I know over in uh, uh, the Middle East, uh, a lot of that I think was Germany. Uh, the charters in Germany went down and kind of got that going. And typically that's what will happen is they'll get a foothold somewhere. And then like I know in South America right now, um, you know, the Angels had been established in a, in a few different places, you know, places like uh, Chile and, and Brazil, and now they're really spreading out all over uh, South America. And I know they've got uh, like a prospect charter in Paraguay right now and in Bolivia uh, and some different places. So usually what happens is, is they will have members from those existing charters go up and it's almost kind of like a, a franchise operation, you know, uh, kind of oversee them, uh, show them, hey, you know, this is how we recruit. This is how we prospect. Uh, you know, this is what, you know, how we conduct business. This is how we deal with people that violate, you know, the club rules uh, and, and things like that. So they can kind of get them up to speed on uh, the day-to-day. But you you had, a, during our uh pre-call, you'd express some concerns about their vetting processes. Well, yeah. And what my main concern is where it comes to the Middle East is people can be radicalized. They can be radicalized in the U.S. Uh, you know, you get 18-year-old white girl from University of Wisconsin that next thing you know is uh, an ISIS member's old lady, you know, uh, just from chatting to him online. So, I mean, people can be radicalized anywhere. So you're bringing these guys in, in the Middle East, and you probably know very little about their family. You don't know who every cousin and every, you know, uncle and everything else is. Uh, how do you know that you're not bringing somebody in who has a close relative that's in Al Qaeda or, you know, one of these other, uh, <clears throat> you know, terrorist organizations. And who's to say that you don't bring in a guy and maybe he's got an associate who's in a terrorist organization and that person gets to them and says, Oh, Hey, I see you're a hell's angel. Now, um, you know, 
we'd like to start doing business. We'd like to start buying, you know, and that business starts uh, occurring. Now, do I think the Hells Angels would knowingly get involved with a terrorist organization? Absolutely not. It would destroy them uh, from a, uh, well, from a reputation standpoint. Uh, plus, it would get them, you know, tagged, if you will, as a, a domestic terrorist or, you know, organization. But that's not to say it unwittingly couldn't happen. But you also have to think about this. If you were a terrorist, what better way to hide out in the open than to join an outlaw motorcycle gang? They have runs all over the place. They have a world run every year. It's somewhere different. What if you're a terrorist, you infiltrate the Hells Angels, for example, and they have a world run in France, and you go up there with them, and you're riding in the big pack. There's five, six hundred, seven hundred of you up there uh, at this event. They're taking pictures everywhere because that's what they do when they're on runs. But you're also taking pictures for other reasons while you're up there because you're scouting out targets. Uh, you know, you're taking intel information back. You're also finding out what the police is like there because the police are going to roll out all the bells and whistles for a big biker rally. Uh, we better have our checkpoints set up. We better. So you're going to have an opportunity to see everything, how it works. Plus, these bikers are notorious for filming the cops when they're on traffic stops and stuff because, oh, we're being harassed. Well, you've got an opportunity to film everything that's going on and take it back to your, your terrorist friends and go, oh, look, this is how they do checkpoints. This is how they did it uh, with the bikes. And look, they didn't even check this or they weren't even paying attention to the flank over here or, you know, it, it, the sky's the limit. And I personally, I think that's a, should be, if it's, if it's not, it ought to be a major concern. It, I think it is, or, or it should be. But you know, but like we said, I wasn't even aware of this until we spoke to you, Steve. This has been very, this has been very informative. But I can tell you, and they will have to adapt because there are policing is done differently. Um, having worked with those guys over there, from there to Pakistan, to India, to Turkey, to places like that, there are going to be some different things. Um, but you know, it's like anything else; they adapt to the culture. It's still, it still may be Hell's Angels, but it'll be Hell's Angels with a culture based upon you know where they're at but still kind of some of the, the main goals. Steve, during your time, what is the biggest misconception people have about motorcycle gangs today that if you could reorient them, and then what's the biggest misconception even to this day law enforcement has? Well, I, I think it's uh, from a public side, it's the whole, you know, oh, these are just a bunch of guys that uh, – you know, do toy runs and stuff, you know? Uh, oh yeah. The, the, I've heard of those guys. They, they do all those charity things and stuff that that's the biggest scam in the history of, well, not the biggest, but one of the biggest scams in the history of the world. Um, <clears throat> we know from a law enforcement standpoint, the old saying 10 attaboys equals one Oh shit. Well, that's how they look at this is we know we're going to get into something really dumb. We're going to go shoot up a casino. Uh, we're going to, you know, wild bunch the Twin Peaks at some point. 
uh, or something's going to happen somewhere that's going to look really bad on the network news for a few days if they can take five minutes from talking about COVID. And, you know, uh, it, it's going to be negative. So why don't we go out and do these toy things and do this, this, and this. And at least we've got, uh, you know, just like the Hells Angels, they got one out in California that he donates bicycles. He goes to Walmart and buys out all these bicycles. And then you put it on social media and the perception is, and then the local news reports upon it. And then all of a sudden in the minds of people, there's this perception that, oh, come on, the Hells Angels, they're not that bad. They do toy runs. They feed the homeless. They go to the hospital and care for the sick and wounded. Yeah, these, these, are, these are nice guys. The cops are picking on them, and you know, for for no reason, they're not really doing anything wrong, and, and that's that's the, unfortunately, and I see it all the time. I will see these guys will have events at places and stuff like that. I will see parents take their children up and have them take pictures with the Hell's Angels, like they're celebrities or something. And it's like, oh my gosh, you realize that this guy, uh, well, you know, I don't want to get too colorful, but. He's probably done some pretty unsavory shit to some young ladies at one point or another in time uh, that you wouldn't want your kids ever experiencing, knowing about being around. You wouldn't even want to see it on TV. Uh, it's the lifestyle. It's, it's, it's what these guys do. So I, I think from a, a public standpoint is, you know, it's the head in the sand. We would not allow... At least I would hope we wouldn't, but the way the world is, who knows? But I, I would like to think that we wouldn't allow Hamas to set up a building uh, at the corner of Third and Main that says Hamas on the side of it, and run around with jackets on that said Hamas on it, and we just let that be business as usual. I'm pretty sure nobody would be in favor of, you know, the Chicago outfit buying a building in downtown and putting Chicago outfit on it and running around with suits that had Chicago outfit printed on the back of it, advertising, you know, La Costa Nostra, we're the, we're the, the mob, but yet we let these guys do it. We let we whack you with dignity. We whack people with dignity. We're the Chicago outfit. We take, we take pride (laughs) in whacking people. Yeah. But somehow it's, it's fully, it's fully acceptable uh, for these guys to set up clubhouses and put Hell's Angels across the side of it and security cameras and barricades and fences and razor wire and run around in uniforms like an army uh, riding their bikes around, carrying weapons, and it's just everybody just turns a blind eye like, oh, well, you know, uh, I, I, I don't get it. I'll never understand it. Well, you know, mainstream America, nobody, unless it affects them directly, they don't really care about it. Yeah. Unless they wake up in the morning and their car's been burned down and, and there's a sign that says, courtesy of the Hells Angels, people go, ah, you know, not my problem. But you, we said something in the pre-call, and I want you to make a point about this too. There is a unique dynamic here because... Normally, things get imported into the U.S. The cartels bring dope in. They bring cocaine in. They bring meth in. We have a thing of bringing, consuming a lot of things here, but motorcycle gangs are, in a sense, a unique American export, right? Well, absolutely. They're the only export of organized crime from the U.S. to the rest of the world. So, yeah, this is something that we sent out uh, like, a, like a virus 
to every place else, and now it's it's taken off, and it's it's a it's a worldwide phen- worldwide phenomenon. I mean, every everybody has a presence. I can't really think of any place that doesn't have a motorcycle gang presence. We've got Hell's Angels in Bosnia. Uh, you know, you got Hell's Angels in Australia and New yeah, Zealand and New Zealand. But I would say Fiji. I would say Fiji's probably a place there's not a Hell's Angels chapter. <laughs> not yet. Give them time. Uh, but I mean, they've got, you know, hell, the banditos are in Kazakhstan, you know. Uh, you've got activity in Belarus. I mean, you've got stuff going on virtually everywhere around the globe. Well, hey, look, we're number one at something that I'm tired of tired of having been the punching bag for the cartels. But, you know, it's just, it's very interesting too. But this has led to some things for you, Steve, that most people wouldn't know about unless we tell them on this globally, you know, uh, this global podcast here with at some point in time, millions and millions of people potentially listening to this that they may at a future point. But you've had some run-ins in a good way. Uh, this lifestyle has led you to have some little bit of fun with Hollywood and doing some stuff along that line. So let's dive into the uh, the media side of Steve Cook Enterprises and uh, tell us about some of the things you have working on. But more more interestingly, at least for me, how did you get involved in this? So Because you sent us a link. We watched it uh, on an episode uh, that you did with... Uh, uh, you know, a show out in the Midwest involving, guess what, bikers. Well, it's kind of a funny story how it started. It, it wasn't really, you know, my plan. I always thought it was cool and interesting. But uh, what happened was is they were doing uh, the the Gangland show on History Channel. And they were doing an episode on the outlaws. And they went to the intel unit at the Chicago Police Department. And it just so happened I had trained the two Intel detectives uh, that work for Chicago PD. And they told the History Channel, they go, we don't know shit about bikers. You need to talk to this guy. And they gave me my number and called. And I did the show. And it apparently went pretty well. And then they had me do another Gangland show. When you say you did the show, tell us tell us what, what did you do? At, you know, what was that episode like? Uh, it was called Biker Wars, I believe, and it was about the Hell's Angels Outlaws War. And, uh, they, you know, they interviewed me a bunch for that. And uh, then I ended up doing one called Bandito Army uh, that was another gangland show. And ultimately, uh, they did a, a show called Beware the Goose, which was on the Galloping Goose, which was uh, specifically on a case that I'd worked. And uh, it was the... the I think the one and only time that Gangland ever did a, a case-specific show uh, on something. And so, you know, I started doing that, and I, I just started picking up, you know, other deals. And I, I did a couple of episodes of a show called Gangsters, America's Most Evil, that was on Biography. And I did one on uh, Taco Bowman that was the Outlaws International President. And I did one on Doc Cavazos, who was the Mongols International President. Yeah, I did a show for, uh, oh, uh, it was called Gang World One Percenters over on Biography and uh, did a one for the American Heroes uh, Network. I think it was called Codes and Conspiracies about Outlaw Bikers and uh, a few other here and there. And I, I did a, hell, I did a documentary for uh, some French company that, that traveled up to Sturgis to meet me and 
uh, it was about the Hell's Angels, Banditos, uh, war over in Europe and kind of a, kind of an interesting experience. So, uh, I can <clears throat> tell you a lot of interesting Sturgis things if you remind me, uh, here in a little bit, but, uh, so I, I started doing that and, you know, I, I kind of got, uh, kind of got geared in. And so what happens is I've got a friend since high school, uh, a guy named Johnny Hurtline and, Johnny lives out in LA and he's, he's, what, a com- what's that last name again? Hurtline. That, <laughs> that either sounds it's like a, an ad for a law firm, you know, call 800. The Hurt. There isn't actually an ad called 1-800 the Hurtline <laughs> or something. So the Hurtline, was he like an enforcer or what did he do? Well, <clears throat> he probably could have been, but, uh, uh, so <clears throat> Johnny, uh, kind of an interesting guy. He moved out to California. And I think the whole, uh, reason that he, he went was to be an actor. I mean, that was kind of what he wanted to do. And, and a, a very, uh, comedic in, individual. And he had, you know, as, as guys in Hollywood have to do, you have to work side jobs sometimes to, to break through. And I think he was working like as a, a concierge at, at, uh, a hotel, which was a perfect job for Johnny because he, uh, you know, great personality. Well, he ends up meeting, meeting a guy named Michael Uden. And Michael Uden's a, a pretty big TV producer out in New York. And <clears throat> Johnny keeps, you know, telling him about me. He's like, hey, man, I got this friend from high school and he does all this motorcycle gang stuff and he's done these shows. And, and so one day, I guess Michael finally decides to you know, YouTube and, and pull up one of the shows. And he's like, well, this guy's kind of entertaining. So they, they, he reaches out and he says, Hey, uh, I, I'd like to, you know, film you a little bit and maybe see if we could, we could sell a show. So I was up in Min- Min- uh, Minneapolis teaching a class and Michael said, I'm going to have one of my partners come out and, uh, <clears throat> that lives in Minnesota, an old friend and, uh, film you. Well, I had no idea what I was getting into, but he sends this guy <clears throat> to come film me, and I meet him, and this guy's name is Bo Caprell, and Bo Caprell is, or you guys, uh, I know you're kind of, especially Murph, he's older than dirt. Um Hey, hey, hey. But <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have watched Laverne and Shirley. Oh, oh yeah. Lenny and Squiggy oh, yeah. and Laverne and Shirley. Well, Bo was Norm the Cop, uh, Laverne's boyfriend, I think, or whatever, on no the show. Kidding. And he also hmm. wrote the Mary Tyler Moore show. He was uh, Saturday Night Live, I mean, back when it was funny. Um, you know, uh, and. <clears throat> You know, like had done all this really cool stuff. I mean, he's just a real Hollywood dude, but a down-to-earth dude. So I meet Bo. He films me, and he's like, dude, you're great. He goes, you need to be on TV. He goes, I- I'm telling you, you know, you- you- you're really good. So make some trips out to New York, go out to Times Square. We take some meetings, have some good conversations. Nothing really is it is in Hollywood. I, you know, I'm sure both of you guys know that, um, 
there's a lot of a lot of lip service out there you know a lot of you know oh yeah we're we're in and then they're they're out so that went on for a while and, and so pretty soon uh i just start working with bo exclusively and bo's like you know we we gotta we gotta get a show we gotta find a show so we come up uh kind of with a show concept and it's it's a show that turns out to be called uh outlaw country and basically what it was is it was a, a small town in you know rural uh midwest america that uh, a, a gang of, of you know biker types is terrorizing and this specialized law enforcement task force you know comes in to to combat it you know it's uh, uh reality and as I, I don't have to tell you what reality tv is is it's the people are real. That doesn't mean everything that happens is real, but that's reality TV. It's an un, it's an unscripted, scripted reality show. Yeah. Yeah. So um, ultimately what happens is we get linked up with a, a company called Bischoff Hervey Entertainment. Uh, Eric Bischoff, uh, a legend in the uh, professional wrestling world with uh, World Wrestling Entertainment and a really all around pretty great guy. Um, it's mainly, I think his company, but he's partnered with a guy named Jason Hervey. Now, Jason Hervey is the guy that played, uh, oh gosh, Wayne on the wonder years. Um, and we, uh, end up getting this show on the air. Uh, we did it for about a year. There was, uh, some, you know, creative differences I, I guess for lack of better terms i'll kind of leave it at that and uh you know bo and i parted ways and uh you know are still doing our own things and and still working on some uh, some stuff uh in you know the true crime genre if you will but uh I, it was a, a very uh lucky fortunate uh experience for me because uh the opportunity to, to meet and work with somebody like Bo is, is very special. Uh, not something that I would have ever, ever imagined. And, uh, trust me, he, he's a very humble individual. He, he undersells himself, but I mean, the guy is, uh, very squared away, very bright, uh, and very talented. Uh, he's got a wonderful family that I've been very fortunate to know, uh, you know, his, his daughter and, and, you know, son-in-law and everybody, and they've, you know, welcomed me into their home and uh, good people. And, and the one thing that I, I think has been most enjoyable for me, and, and again, I know that there's all sides of it out there and, and there's definitely as much bad as there is good, but I've actually been fortunate enough to experience the, the pleasant side of Hollywood, if you will, because the people that I have dealt with, at least at the network level, uh, I've I've had meetings at Netflix and you know YouTube and and uh, you know uh, Amazon and uh, you know A and E and MGM. I mean you know you name it. I've probably been to their offices, but at least the people I've dealt with at the you know TV level for documentary you know et cetera et cetera have been 
extremely law enforcement friendly. Uh, I can't tell you how many people, you know, thank you for your service. And, you know, I love what you guys do. And, and so for me, that, that was a good experience because I know that there's a, another side of it that's probably not so, uh, you know, pleasant, but I, I enjoyed that aspect of it probably the most. We know the our experience with the documentaries have been about the same as yours. They they really are looking for the truth. They're looking for things that have never been reported before, but they're not willing to, uh, you know, far, stretch too far from the truth. Whereas you know we love Narcos, but the one thing we found out, and we love Eric Newman, who was the creator. He's he's been honest with us, and he's lived up to his word every time. But what we learned is Hollywood certainly won't let the truth get in the way of a good story, will they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unless and that's the reason why these series sell a hell of a lot more than documentaries. Documentaries are about the truth, but right. but this other stuff is about entertainment, you know, and you right. have, it requires a suspension of belief to do that. Well, Steve, how come is it you're still, you know, slinging a badge and going to court like you did today? You're down in federal court. Why aren't you doing this Hollywood gig full time, man? Why, I mean, why aren't you... Uh, why aren't we seeing you on the, the silver screen there somewhere doing stuff on outlaw motorcycle gangs or something like that? I'm just waiting for the right phone call. Uh, you know, uh, honestly, you know, I, I don't have to tell you, uh, I, it's, it's a difficult process and it, it's, you know, uh, selling shows is, is not, not an easy go, uh, regardless of what it is. I mean, it's just, uh, the things that you think wouldn't get picked up do, and the things that you think are a slam dunk don't. Um, so, My God, have you seen any of the shows on the Lifetime channel or even on ID Discovery? You know, three-headed killer sisters with warts who, you know, kill on Wednesdays. That's a series. I mean, it's like, how does this stuff make it on TV? Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's There's a lot of stuff that you just, you scratch your head sometimes, and I kind of look at everything as, you know, all in the good Lord's timing. You know, if it's meant to be, it happens. If it's not, it don't. And you know what? I I can't I can't concern myself or, or, or worry about it. But um, but you know, I also have uh, I kind of committed to something when I took the job, and you know, I'm 50. I'll be 51 in in April, uh, but you know, you're supposed to kind of stay till you're 55, at least at, at my agency for, for, you know, your full retirement. And I kind of committed myself that, Hey, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, I, I like what I do right now. I, I feel like I'm pretty, pretty good at it. And, uh, so, you know, I'm not in any hurry to, uh, leave, but that's not to say that I wouldn't leave if the right opportunity, you know, it's like anything else. Uh, if there were enough zeros on the check, it might change your mind. Yeah. And, and I'm involved in a lot of, you know, other stuff. And, you know, I, I do a lot of consulting stuff. I do a lot of, uh, you know, expert witness on, you know, motorcycle gang. I, I don't work for the defense, uh, obviously, because, you know, of my job. But I do a lot of civil stuff. And if there's a civil case that, you know, I can I can get involved in I, I do that uh, they, it pays well and uh, you know I do I do training whenever I can do training I, I do training and uh, that's something that I, I really enjoy uh, but it's also uh, it's also a frustrating thing to do because uh, a lot of places refuse to acknowledge you know I, I charge money to train you but a lot of places want free training and they don't understand that you get exactly what you pay for. 
with free training. Exactly. Uh, and, and the shame is they have budgets for training. Yeah. I always tell people there's a reason why it's free because nobody would pay for it. You know, that, that's why you're, that's why you're getting it for free because if somebody would pay money for it, they'd be getting it somewhere. So. And Steve, and you know, Steve's training sessions, he's bringing in two of the best instructors here later this year that, that he could ever come across. So that's what they tell we appreciate me. That. Uh, I, mean, you know, the thing I is, heard you were scraping the bottom <laughs> of the barrel. You couldn't find anybody for free. And this is the only people that they, I can guarantee you one of the people you're bringing in. I know if you give him a free shirt, he will do almost anything. I got another free shirt on right now here. Steve. Oh, it's you, Steve. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, you, cheesy, right? You know, I got I got conned by Lou Velozzi and and you know, he's like, <laughs> Hey, hey bro, hey bro, everything's a bro. Uh and he's like, Hey bro, man, these these guys, man, and and I'm like, All right, Lou. And then I I'm like, Well, I actually watched the show, Lou, and I it was good. So I mean like your endorsement I appreciate, but I, I was all you know, I was all in anyway, but, uh, you know, I got to give him the we credit. We won't let you down, bro. He, he you. made the intro, so I got to give him the credit. He, in fact, he, that's how we got you on the show. Yeah, courtesy of Lou. Man, so this this has been good. So you got your fingers in quite a few things. If you woke up tomorrow and you could only do one thing for the next five years, what would it be? You know, if I could just do one thing, I'd work bikers. If I could just do that exclusively and there was some kind of federal OCDF task force and they and they came and said, hey, we just want you to assemble a team and focus, you, you know, anywhere in the United States and go work bike gangs. Oh, that'd be the that'd be the dream gig. Uh, and I would uh, I would wreck these guys. These guys are lucky that, you know, I'm somewhat contained to the the Midwest where I'm at, because if you gave me free reign, uh, God help you. I, I would cause you so many problems. Yeah. There you go, Murph. That's what you it. signed up for. Okay. You go down, just, yeah, do a good job. Otherwise you're going to have so many problems, Murph, when he comes looking for you. Hey, no, you don't let a brother down like that. Nah. Well, hey, man, this has been, again, this is like with Stephen Matelski, episode 21. We talked about Canadian organized crime. And Steve, well, Murph, I just remember, too, that's the one case Pam Barna from episode three, our first Canadian. She was working a Hells Angel case, too. Um, yeah, that's right. They are. They are They are everywhere. Now we know. Yeah, we've got so many tie-ins tie to that. When we had Lou on, I think there was, I mean, there's obviously tie-in to motorcycle gangs there and stuff, too. So this is something that's kind of the stuff of lore. You know, e people think of Easy Rider and Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper or Charles Bronson, you know. But it's it's more than the way Hollywood glamorizes it. When you peel it back, when you look underneath, it's not what you see on the surface. It's what's happening underneath. That's that's where it's really hurting society and hurting people. Well, this has been, again, Steve, man, this has been a master class in the history of motorcycle mm -hmm. gangs and the work that you're doing. And people can't see this, but this is me saluting you, saying thank you for doing that. Because I know being from the Midwest, God-fearing Midwest, you know, but we had, you know, it is a huge issue with uh, the violence and stuff and the, and the, not only just the gangs, but the things they perpetuate from drug trafficking, human trafficking, working with the cartels. So this is something that affects everybody one way or the other. And this is us saluting you, sir, saying, thank you. Continue the good work. Yeah. And I would, I, I want to express the same thing, Steve. It's, it's been an honor to have you on here. Uh, to my knowledge, no other podcast is doing this kind of interview. So we, you know, it's part of the game. That's why we call it Game of Crimes. 
you know, and and what I love about having you on here is you're you're straightforward, a little bit blunt, which you like. I'd rather you not beat around the bush. And your expertise and your experience, it takes guys like you that have got the balls to stand up to these guys, not be afraid of them, approach them on their own level, and take care of business. So it's it it is. I'm not saying this just to say it because we appreciate you being on the show, but it's an honor to have you on here and. Brother, we're praying for you to keep the you know keep doing the good Lord's work there. Uh, keep up everything you're doing, and the other thing is we understand why you guys kicked Morgan out of the Midwest. But damn, well now we got to fill. You know, what do you mean you traitorous bastard? You moved to Florida. I'm still in the east. <laughs> well, yeah, you're, you're southeast. In the southeast, way down there. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, Steve, thank you for doing this and looking. If you stay a good guy, we may actually move you out of let quit. You know, from uh, associate to hang around, we may actually make you a prospect of Game of Crimes. We'll even send you a rocker and a patch and the whole works. Well, that'd be great. Well, thanks for having me on. And I, I have to ask before I go, do you want to hear the Sturgis story? Oh well, hey, we got to man. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what we will do is uh, ignore everything we said, because we're not going to say it again, but we will just pretend that we're saying it again after we get done with the Sturgis story. So Yeah, we'll insert this before. So this will probably go down as one of my, it wasn't a fond memory at the time, but... Uh, it usually never is when it starts off a story like this. You go, what the fuck was I thinking when I did this? <laughs> so about a week before Sturgis... I had a official law enforcement contact with some members of the Sons of Silence alongside I-70. And, you know, I treat these guys with respect. I, you know, you give respect, you get it in return. And, you know, I try to operate like that. I kind of pride myself that when I have dealt with these individuals historically, uh, I, it's probably a very rare occasion that it hasn't ended with a handshake. You know, you don't have to like me and what I do, and I don't have to like you and what you do, but we can at least respect one another. So <clears throat> I'm up in Sturgis a week later, and we've been out riding all day. I'm with my buddy Greg Scott. He's a uh, lieutenant up at uh, Indianapolis Metro Police Department. And we uh, stopped on Main Street, you know, doing the Main Street thing, getting a beer, buying some T-shirts, what have you. And I come back to the bike. And try to turn it over, and it's deader than a doornail. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. What What is going on with this motorcycle? So I'm like, well, I, I'm going to have to do something. So I start taking the seat off. You know, got to take the saddlebag. I got a road glide, so I got to take that all off to get to the battery so I can try to figure out what in the heck's going on with this motorcycle. Well, Greg's a lot of help. He's standing there laughing at me. Uh, taking pictures of me having to disassemble my bike with these crappy tools that I carried in my saddlebag. And while I'm doing it, I can just sense, you know, you can always tell when somebody's looking at you, and I can just sense it. And so I stand up, and I turn around, and guess who's standing on the sidewalk right behind my bike? The Sons of Silence members. And... They're smiling, and they're like, how are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, you know. Could use a hand. <laughs> bike problems? I go, yeah, just a little bit. And uh, the one of them goes, you know, I got a lot of tools up at the campground. Uh, if you want to run up there, we can get some. And I'm like, yeah, I bet you you do got some tools up at the campground. And so 
Right in the middle of this exchange, Greg takes a picture, and I still have, of me and this guy talking, and I laugh. I wasn't laughing at the time, but those guys, I bet you, enjoyed that the most out of the whole entire rally, watching me with my, my sled broke down on Main Street, and then being the only people that could potentially help me. So what I ended up doing is I took the battery out, Sturgis Harley-Davidson doesn't have a service department. They, it's just like a t-shirt and memorabilia shop. I had to hoist that damn thing down the sidewalk, had to walk through the middle of the Hells Angels to get there. They put it on a battery tender for me. I had to hang out for about two hours, and then I had to walk back, bolt the damn thing back in again, start the bike, and get out of there. I will never forget that as long as I live, and I'm sure those guys probably won't either, but I, I just thought of all the luck, and then I thought to myself, well, I'm sure glad I was at least nice to him when I dealt with him because this could have probably went a whole different direction uh, than it did, but uh, it, it was probably uh, one of the most ironic experiences I've ever had. Oh, you, that could have been a knife in the back when you were working on your bike there. And that goes back to what I said earlier. Why do you respect these folks? Because you never know when you're going to run into them again. Instead of years later, you were just more like a, a few days later. Yeah. Well, you, and you know, every time they see a show that you're on or your name comes up, they're going, remember the time, remember There's the, the time. guy. That's the guy. <laughs> I had a group of banditos one time asked to take a group picture with me when we had them stopped. And he's like, you're the guy that did our gangland show. And I'm like, yeah, um, we're not taking a picture. Wow. Yeah, we're, we're, we're good. <laughs> that was my twin brother. You know, that, that, that's Bob. That's Bob Cook, you know. Well, hey, man, this yeah. has been, uh, again, the, we're not going to redo the outro. That's It is what it is, but I can tell you, this is great stuff. But as we say with our new saying, everybody stay tuned for the debrief. What I tell you, man, I took notes. Class is in session. And I'll tell you, I mean, I never dealt with uh, motorcycle gangs to the extent Steve did. I mean, we dealt with them during Sturgis. They would be coming through Kansas, the Banditos, you know, folks like that. But I tell you, the most interesting thing I think I learned is learning the actual origin of the one percenters, because I always thought it was about who's the one percent, the biggest, baddest criminals. No, it goes back to the American and the AMA, not the American Medical Association, but the yeah. American Motorcycle <laughs> Association. And 99% are good, but 1% are troublemakers. And I, I didn't, that, just that little nugget right there, I mean, that put a lot in perspective. It did. I never, I was unaware of that as well. I thought you, to be a one percenter, I thought you had to murder somebody or, or participate in some special crime. So that was very knowledgeable. We found out who the creator is of the motor, you know, the current motorcycle gang back in the beginning. Uh, this was very educational. And the loyalty that is displayed between members of a club it, it, you know, there's no equation here between outlaws and cops, but the, you know, the camaraderie within law enforcement, that's why we call it a brotherhood and a sisterhood. It keeps us all go going. That's the biggest thing you miss when you retire. But these guys, boy, they take it to a whole new level. You know, you ditch your wife like that. My wife would slap me right in public. You know, I'm afraid of her, not these guys. They slap them down and nobody retaliates. I'm afraid of her too. I haven't made fun of West Virginia, you notice, for two episodes now. That's coming to an end, pal, but for a couple episodes, I haven't done it. Well, look, guys, if you thought that was good, like I said, we've got some really good stuff coming up. In fact, this next week, uh, when this comes out, Murph and I have got three more episodes we're recording. We've got some good stuff coming up, um, and you, we're just going to tell you, don't 
just trust us. It's going to be great stuff. We're really going to take this to a whole new level this year. But if you enjoyed it, head on over to Apple and Spotify. Rate us with that five stars. It's magic. We don't know exactly how it works, but we know it really helps. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. And remember, we've got our new book list. As we have uh, guests come on, we're going to be adding their books to the list. And uh, with the link to Amazon, you can go buy it. Or you can go buy it anywhere. We just put the link in there to make it easier. But head on over there. Also, head on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes, man. I'm telling you, we've got great stuff out there, and we're going to put out some teasers, too. We're going to put out some um, snippets of some of our episodes that we've done on there, too. But I'm telling you, we put a lot of effort into this, and we really appreciate the same thing, the, the camaraderie, the loyalty we get from folks out there. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram paypal.com use our email game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes whatever makes it easier for you to support the show and bring you even more exciting content but steve you know i'm telling you i think i think everybody stays tuned we've got some really great stuff coming up stories of heroism stories of uh, undercover work stories of uh police corruption you know that cost one guy basically his almost his career he had to fight you know and come back but lessons learned from that so i think we've got a lot of great stuff coming up in the next few episodes absolutely and, and you know i don't want to beat this thing with patreon to death i mean you do a great job of promoting that but hey give us a try you know come on for one month listen to some of our content if you don't like it then back out if you do then maybe consider moving on up but uh, that's what helps keep us going right here and just to be quite honest with you there you know, what we do isn't for free, so we need all the help we can get, and we appreciate everything you're doing for us. So uh, continue to, to come in. It's like Morgan says, uh, you know, share with, what is it? You listen to one, share, share one, one, tell one. Yeah. Share one, tear one. So help. Tear one. Share one, tell one. Or I can't speak this morning. <laughs> yeah, we may have some uh, uh, exciting news coming up later in the year, so uh, we can't tell you about any of that right now, but um, you never know what's going to happen with Game of Crimes here, so stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned, folks, and thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, The Game of Crimes. 